there are books upon books upon books about how to organize a church. There's shelves and shelves. Go to bookstores, uh, go to Christian book distributors. There's shelves upon shelves upon shelves of books on how to do Sunday worship, on how to set up small group programs, on how to uh, run discipleship, on how to do structure for church programs, processes, meetings, uh, training leaders, outreach programs, etc., etc., etc. Shelves and shelves of books. Here, we're starting our second week of, of studying this letter Paul wrote to Titus. Paul, was, Paul wrote this letter to Titus, a very short letter, giving Titus instructions on how to organize a church. And in this letter, you won't find anything about structures, programs, processes, meetings, and all that other stuff. You won't find anything about that. All those are things that... Um, that we need to figure out here in our own particular context, here in Cross of Life, the community of Lisgar, city of Mississauga, how are we going to carry out the things we need to do here? All those are things that, that we are, have freedom and that we, that we have the responsibility to figure out in our own local context. What is universally important in organizing and carrying out the work of the church is gospel-centered discipleship. Shepherding people with the gospel. Putting, putting people in touch with the gospel and, and people who have the gospel in touch with other people. Shepherding people with the gospel. All the rest of the things, how we organize the church, how we carry that out, how we, in our context, how we structure ourselves, the things we're going to do, how we carry that out, all that, that's up to us to figure out in ways that would please God and honor his kingdom here, but what is universally important as a church gets organized is shepherding people with the gospel. And so, the first thing Paul told Titus to do was to appoint elders, appoint leaders. This task, as Paul says, had been left unfinished. Why was it left unfinished? We don't know exactly, but as Paul writes to Timothy, he writes very strongly about the danger of appointing elders too soon, um, before they're ready, before they've been brought to maturity where they'd be ready to serve as elders. Paul would normally uh, go to a place and preach the gospel and, and, and see the Holy Spirit bring, to faith, bring people to faith in Jesus, and then he would organize Christians into local churches. And then over time, he would raise up and train leaders and elders to then continue shepherding those people. Now, Paul had done this on uh, Crete, but then Paul had left, and he left Titus there to continue shepherding the people there, but especially now by appointing elders. So it hadn't been done yet. That's how new this was, and th there weren't people may maybe ready when Paul had left, but now this is going to be Titus's job to shepherd the people by appointing leaders to shepherd them. And he should look for leaders who have proven themselves as disciples so that they would uh, spend their time making disciples. What do you look for in a leader? If you're looking for a leader, what, what do you look for? I think first thing we often look for are skills, right? Um, are they the good speaker? Uh, do they have a dynamic personality? Are, do they have a 
can, or skills to organize things or uh, administration skills or, you know, wh- whatever it is you're looking for this person to be a leader, um, I think we often look for skills. But when you're appointing leaders for a church, the first thing to ask is not, do they have a PhD? Uh, were they successful in business? Are, are they a doctor or a lawyer? Do they have a degree of some type? We're not looking for worldly success. The, the first thing that the Bible tells us that we should be looking for in an elder is, how do they look like in society? And, and how do they look like in their own home? In other words, w- what is their reputation in society? Are they leading their family well at home? Leaders must be blameless in their home. I'm going to start by reading verses 5 to 8. The reason, and it's, on, it's in your bulletin, the reason I left you in Crete, this is Paul talking to Titus, the reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town, as I directed you. An elder must be blameless, the husband of but one wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. A leader must be blameless in their home. That, that doesn't mean perfect. None of us are perfect. What does it mean to be blameless? Blameless means that they have a good reputation. It means that there's no public accusation against them. So husband about one wife. So he's faithful to his wife. He's got a strong marriage. He's, he's committed to his wife. He's not flirting around with other women. Um, his children believe. So his children's beliefs reflect a faith-centered home, a home where Christian faith has been passed on and, and shared with them. And, 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 the, and the children have adopted the beliefs of, of mom and dad. But, but it, their children's beliefs reflect that, that they have the gospel shared with them. It, do, it doesn't mean that as the children get older and leave the home or whatever that that they don't go a different path or, 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 or turn away from that, but it means those children who are in the home have been shared that faith with. They have had the gospel shared with them. And that they aren't uh, open to be wild and disobedient. So that means the parents are intentionally modeling and teaching the faith to their children. It doesn't mean the children are perfect, but it means that there's discipline there. So the main issue when you're looking for leaders to appoint, is that elders must already be leading well in their own home. The way that a man leads his own family will tell us a lot about, he, about how he will lead God's family. Is that not true? I mean, if he is domineering the home, domineering in the home, he, he will very likely be domineering in the church. If he is failing to take responsibility in the home, he will likely shirk responsibility in the church. So the, the most important resume, the most important reference for a church leader is what goes on in his home life. 
Just to be clear, these requirements aren't just requirements for elders only. Okay, so um, it, it, it's not as though an elder can't be a drunkard, but you can. It's not as though an elder has to be faithful to his wife, but you can sleep around. It's not as though an elder can't lose his temper, but you can be a jerk and flip people off. These aren't just requirements for elders only. These are requirements for all of us. The reason you can't be an elder if you aren't meeting these requirements and living your life by these requirements is because it means that you aren't walking faithfully as a Christian. Okay, these are requirements. This is how we live. This description given that is a requirement for elders, this description given is the kind of life that all of us are called to live and that all of us want to live as a response to the gospel, as a response to the fact that we have a God who's given us everything and, and has loved us more than we could ever deserve or imagine. And so we want to live like this. We want to be faithful to our spouse. We want to uh, be in control of how we live. We want to be loving, serving, giving toward others, keeping our temper in check, and all of those things. We want to do that to honor God. But if you're going to be an elder, if you're going to be someone in a position of leadership, a position of responsibility, who other people are going to be looking to as a model, you're required to live your life like this. We have a, we have a generation of men who, who want to live as perpetual children. It is, it's easier, it's a lot easier to, to uh, avoid responsibility than, than to bear it, isn't it? it it's a lot easier to want to be a follower in your home than a leader. It's a lot easier to uh, want to enjoy the benefits of married life while holding on to the benefits of single life. So we men need to encourage each other to grow up. Our our families and our churches need us to, to lead and, and take initiative and serve. Our families and our churches need us to strive to live like Christ, to be Christ for them. And so churches need to train men to be leaders in their homes. Paul wasn't looking for leaders with the best skills but with the best character um in he, he gives five negative characteristics and six positive characteristics in verses seven and eight that, that we just read i'm not going to go through each one and talk about it. i'm going to make a couple observations first observation is this um skills used for selfish aims become destructive Right? You, can, you can have all the skills in the world. You can be the most skilled person in the world. You can have skills upon skills. But if you use them for selfish aims, they don't do anyone any good. They actually corrupt and destroy. Think about it. Think about all the tyrants who have caused so much trouble in the world. <laughs> they have no lack of skills. They're probably some of the most intelligent, skilled people who have ever walked the face of the earth. Skills aren't the problem. The problem is character. The problem is how they're using the skills. That's why skills are not as important in character, especially when we're talking about leaders uh, in the church, leaders at home and in the church. Second thing is that failure to teach the truth often begins with failure to live morally, to live according to the truth. 
our enemy our, and our sinful nature, working with our enemy, wants to destroy us, and especially wants to destroy leaders, and especially wants to destroy potential leaders, and it so often does by first getting them to fail in the way they live. See, we're, we're all sinful human beings, and we are all prone to justifying our behavior, aren't we? I mean, and some of us, we get really good at some things. We, we get really good at finding reasons to do what we want to do and justify it. We, we, that's something we all can do. So, one of the questions um, that we must ask of any potential leader is, what behavior will they seek to justify when given a position of leadership? Because we all do it. Think about your, what, what about you? What, what are some behaviors that you know are wrong? Uh, behaviors that you know are sinful and yet you find easy to justify by just pretending, um, so you can pretend that, that, uh, that what is wrong, what you know is wrong, is, is actually okay. I'm, sh- I'm sure that each one of us can think of some things that we're pretty good at justifying. It's so easy to try changing the truth to fit with our desires or to suit our desires. It's a lot harder to bring our desires under control of the truth. It's better, but it's a lot harder. When when we know this is wrong, I need to bring it under control of what I know is right, and the gospel is going to fuel me to do that. So leaders must be blameless in their home. Um, What's going to help them do that is the next one. Leaders must also be blameless in their doctrine. Verse 9 says, He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. He must hold firmly to the, mess- the trustworthy message as it has been taught. Not, you know, the way you want to understand, the way you want to interpret it, but the word of God as God has taught it to us. That is what we all must hold firmly to, especially leaders. Leaders must be blameless in their doctrine so that they can encourage others with sound teaching as it has been taught and so that they can refute those who oppose it. So leaders need to know the word. Leaders need to be in the word. Uh, Kevin and I are going to be attending a pastoral conference here the next couple days and the whole subject of it is the devotional life of a called worker the importance of being in the word if we're going to be called workers if we're going to be leaders in the church leaders need to know the word they need to be in the word they need to understand the word so let's say if you have a guy that has all those other qualities okay he's blameless in the home he's got great character good guy loves people loves jesus but he cannot take you from point a to point b in the bible don't allow him to be an elder But he's a great guy. He's got great character. He'll make a great shepherd. If you can't feed the sheep, you're not a great shepherd. Okay? If if a pastor is no theologian, he is no pastor. Let me me lay it out like this. Imagine that you say, you and a friend are talking, and you say, I have a really great doctor. And your friend says, oh, great. Did he help you with your sickness? And you say, 
well, no, but he's really nice. Wait a minute, you have heart disease. He didn't do anything to help you with your serious disease? Well, no, but he's, but he's really helpful and kind. He's got a great bedside manner. Does he know anything about practicing medicine? Well, no, but he, but he, but he reads books and he listens to podcasts uh, from guys that do. He's a really great doctor. No, he isn't. And, and the same would be true for a pastor or an elder uh, who doesn't know their scripture, who doesn't know the word. Leaders must encourage and rebuke their church with the gospel. And so uh, their people need them to preach, teach, and celebrate the gospel. Their people need them to love, live by, and grow in their understanding of the gospel. They are to be discipled by the gospel, and they are to disciple with the gospel. They are to shepherd with the gospel. So they need to know the gospel. Uh, Number one, to encourage, and number two, to rebuke. Encouragement, we're good with, right? We were, just, we were just talking about it in Bible study this morning. We're good with encouragement. We like when, uh, when our leader encourages us, right? And we, we need to do that. We like when someone says, thank you. Uh, we like when someone says, um, when someone compliments us. We like when someone comes by our side, takes us alongside, and encourages us, lifts us up with the gospel, lifts us up with the good news, uh, thanks us, shows appreciation, does something to encourage and lift us up. We like that one. And uh, we need to be doing, all of you, we were just talking about this in Bible study this morning, all of you, we all need to be encouraging each other, thanking each other, because so many of you do so many things for so, for all of, for each other. Thank each other, show appreciation, compliment each other, uh, and lift each other up with the good news of the gospel. Can we be a church that encourages each other? And it needs to begin with the leaders. You leaders, you need to be encouraging those around you and lifting them up. And we like that. I don't think anyone has a problem with encouragement. The other thing, though, the rebuking part, the silencing part, not so much, right? Sometimes when you get rebuked, when you get silenced, when you're told uh, that is not right, um, our response, what, what is, the thought that is in our hearts and the, the thing you want to say is, who do you think you are? Who gave you that right? Well, the answer is kind of, the answer is God. Because that's the job that God gave to certainly leaders of the church. And that's really the job that God gave to all of us to do for each other. So who gave the right? God did. He's asking me to do that. He wants us. Why? Why does God give that job? Uh, For the sake of the faith of God's people. Because he loves us. And because they love us. A loving leader is going to put your eternal destiny before your present comfort. They're going to warn you and challenge you when they see you wandering off the path, they, they're gonna, they know that, that, that what's nicest for you to hear isn't always what's best for you to hear. And this is hard for us because we live in a culture that doesn't like authority, doesn't like rebuking, doesn't like to be told you can't do that. And to be quite honest, most leaders don't relish confrontation. But listen to your leaders when they counsel you from God's word. Listen to them. Yeah. Too often I hear, 
well, yeah, but well, well my, my lawyer told me to do this. Or, or, you know, my brother, yeah, the one who was divorced five times, he, he told me to, that I should do this. Or, uh, or the, my counselor that I go and see uh, told me not to, not to listen to what the Bible says, but that I should just go and do this. Well, you tell your counselor to keep their forked tongue behind their teeth. Listen to the word of God. Listen to Christian leaders shepherding you with the gospel. Why? Because there will always be challenges to your faith. There will always be challenges to your faith. Like there was on Crete. Verses 10 to 16. Now this tells us, here was the challenges. Here was going on. Here's the reason why you need those leaders there. Verse 10. For there are many rebellious people, mere talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they are ruining whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach. And that for the sake of dishonest gain. Even one of their own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths or to the commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions, they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. Challenges to our faith. Disorder had entered the church with rebellious people leading people astray. And this is why that church on Crete needed God-fearing leaders. Because these uh, rebellious groups were disrupting whole households. Now that, that's, where, that's where the churches met. So they met in houses and whole house churches were being disrupted by their teachings. Some of them rejected Christian faith. They needed to be silenced. And some of them were sliding away from Christian faith and they needed to be brought to repentance, brought back to the faith. So troubles, challenges to your faith. The, the first one is um, mentioned there really would be rebellion. The, the word evil brutes in verse 12, literally in the Greek, it's dangerous animals. Dangerous animals. So it's kind of interesting because Crete was known for, for having no dangerous animals. It's an island. So Crete was known for having no dangerous animals, but it was well known that its human inhabitants more than made up for their lack of wildlife. Now, the Bible often calls Christians sheep. It calls Jesus the good shepherd, and it calls leaders in the church shepherds, or sometimes under shepherds, under the shepherd. So that's the lingo the Bible uses to describe us. The problem on Crete is that some Christians didn't want to be part of a flock under a shepherd. They, they, um, they wanted to be solitary wild animals. They, they, wanted, um, they wanted to see themselves as individually, to look at themselves individually, not part of a group. But sheep don't do well as wild animals. We know that. They don't last that long. They need to be part of a flock. They need a shepherd. And friends, that's just as true for us today as it was for the people on Crete. Paul, the Apostle Paul, in these words of Scripture, is telling us um, to, to don't be self-willed, independent. 
Don't assume that, that, that you always know best. Be willing to sit under authority. We need other people around us, especially mature Christians, to lead us. So rebellion was one of the challenges of faith. Another one is legalism. Legalism, making rules up, saying that we have to do things that the Bible doesn't say that we have to do in order to be right with God. So the main source on the problem, as Paul said, was the circumcision group. The Judaizers, we sometimes call them. These were the people who were going around teaching that you had to obey all of those Jewish ceremonial laws if you were going to be a Christian. In order to be a Christian, in order to be saved, in order to go to heaven. Um, that you had to be circumcised even if you were a Greek, even if you grew up in a different sort of, of culture. That you had to do all these rules and laws in order to identify yourself as a Christian and be a Christian and be saved. Even though the gospel says that God did it all for you, they're saying there are these other things that you have to do in order for God to love you, in order to be saved. So they were rebelling against the gospel and they were deceiving people. They were actually being brutes and gluttons. Now, but legalism always sounds good, right? You know, these nice rules. Well, I'm, don't, don't drink any alcohol. Then you'll be a more godly person. It, it often, you know, it, they sound good. They sound godly. But listen, rules that look as though they are promoting godliness and protecting godliness are actually limiting godliness. Godliness gets reduced, true godliness gets reduced to ticking off boxes, right? Well, as long as I do this and this, I'll be okay. As long as I get circumcised, I'll be godly. As long as I make sure I don't eat this kind of food, I'll be godly. As long as I don't drink this kind of drink, I'll be godly. So you can be circumcised, um, and be a lying glutton, but you can convince yourself that you're godly. Think about it. I can convince myself that I'm godly because I listen to Christian music and I pray every day, even if I'm cheating on my timesheets at work like everybody else is. I can convince myself that I'm godly uh, because I don't touch alcohol, even though I'm short-tempered with my wife. I can convince myself I'm godly because I have never missed church even though maybe I haven't done a single thing to show love or service to anyone at the church. So we, we can find things, we can recognize things and see things um, in our culture and react against those aspects of our culture and then make these little rules for ourselves to protect us from those negative aspects, those ungodly aspects of our culture while ignoring other ungodly aspects of the same culture and not doing anything about those, but considering ourselves godly. So we reduce godliness, true godliness, from becoming Christ-like to becoming a little bit less like our culture. We, um, we substitute, we, Christian maturity, true Christian maturity is exchanged or substituted for not sleeping around, not getting drunk, and not missing Bible study. That's a true Christian maturity. That's not what the Bible says true Christian maturity is. It's so much more. The gospel, the good news, 
is that God gave everything to us. And the God who gave us everything at great cost to himself wants our everything in thanks. So true godliness doesn't ask, true godliness doesn't say, how much must I do? True godliness says, how much can I give? See the difference? Adding rules, adding rules to make ourselves more godly actually limits godliness. And here's the even worse thing. Legalism, adding rules, has no power to change our lives. It has no power to change our lives. I'm sure that you have seen strict religious people who are actually evil brutes at home, uh, bullying their wife or uh, abusing their children. Or you've seen people who, uh, they, they don't drink, but they can't be trusted with money. Um, it isn't food and sex and drink that corrupt us. Okay? We misuse them because our hearts are corrupt. Rules have no power to change our lives. Grace. Grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness. That's the theme of the whole letter. We're going to be spending, that's what next week, we're going to be spending time on. Grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness. The gospel teaches us to say no to ungodliness. The gospel gives us power. Grace is not just the beginning of the Christian life. It is the fuel for Christian life. Legalism, adding rules, is not substitute fuel. It doesn't work. It's not fuel of any kind. But it often sounds good. Well, let's avoid all this stuff and be more godly. It sounds good, but it doesn't work. It isn't fuel. It's motivated by dishonest gain, whether financial gain or reputational gain. It, it is based on obeying human commands, and it actually corrupts people as it was doing on Crete. The problem isn't with God's good gifts like, like sex and food and drink. The problem is with people's hearts, okay? It, it, sex and food and drink aren't corrupt, but we make them corrupt by using them sinfully and selfishly. Verse 15 says, to the pure, all things are pure. So to those that Jesus has made pure through faith, all outward things are pure and open to our use, using them in the way God intended them. But to those who don't believe, so therefore are impure or corrupt, nothing is pure. Nothing honors God. Not even rule following like getting circumcised. There's no list of things you could do if you don't have faith in Jesus as your Savior that will actually honor God. Let's apply this to something just more um, modern. Um, someone says to you, video games can be addictive and can encourage laziness and even violence. Therefore, video games are bad. The Apostle Paul would say, wrong. Video games don't corrupt us. We corrupt video games when our hearts use them in addictive ways. So we can't say that video games are always bad and should never be used. But nor can we say that video games are always good and can always be used. If you are someone who is addicted to video games, so much so that you, you spend so many hours playing video games that you have no time to serve other people, 
or you, you stay up all night long playing them so that you can't function properly during the day, or they're maybe encouraging you into some violent behavior, then get rid of video games. But the corrupting influence isn't the video games, it is the user. I lost half of you on that one. I'm going to get hopefully the other half of you with this one. Someone says to you, romantic comedies encourage people to be discontent with their marriage. Therefore, romantic comedies are bad. Okay? The Apostle Paul would say, wrong. Romantic comedies don't corrupt you. Your discontent hearts do. So we can't say that romantic comedies are always bad and must always be avoided. But we can't say that romantic comedies are always good and can always be used. So if romantic comedies are causing you to be discontent with your marriage or discontent with your singleness, then avoid them. But making a rule about one or the other is not going to change anything. Legalism has no power to change our lives. The gospel has power to change our lives. The gospel is this. God saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. We are saved by grace alone at the cross of Jesus. Not by obeying any rules. We are saved by grace alone. Legalism says you should not do this. The gospel says you need not do this. Legalism says you should not sleep with your boyfriend. You should not get drunk. You should not lose your temper. The gospel says you need not. You need not sleep with your boyfriend because God has something so much better to offer you. You need not get drunk because God is such a, a, a better refuge to give you. You need not lose your temper because, because God is in control of the entire situation. Legalism says you should not. The gospel says you need not because God is always bigger and better than sin. You see, sin always makes promises. The gospel exposes those as false promises and points to God to remind us that God is always bigger and better than anything that sin offers, and that is the good news. That is the good news. Do you remember Jesus with that woman at the well in Samaria? They start talking together, and, and he, you know, he quickly points out what he knows, that she had actually gone through five husbands and was living now with someone who wasn't her husband. So definitely convicting her of that. And I'm thinking what you know, most of us maybe would have done. You know, Jesus could have and should have said, you should not have done that, and you should not be doing this. But he didn't. He said, you need not be doing that because of this awesome thing that I have to offer you. Legalism says you should not do these things. The gospel says you need not do this because what Jesus has to offer you is far better than any of that. What Jesus has to offer you 
is the water of life. Living water. It's not human commands that make disciples. It is the word of God that makes disciples, that creates disciples. And what is that word of God? It is the gospel. The hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. Friends, we are called, we are called to commend the gospel to one another, to shepherd each other with the gospel, so that we might live gospel-changed lives and gospel-shaped lives for the purpose of doing good and bringing more people to God, enjoying God's gifts in ways that bring glory to Him and good to us, shepherded by the gospel and shepherding with the gospel. Amen. And the peace of God which transcends all understanding keep our hearts and minds through faith in Christ Jesus. Amen.